Welcome to The Whole Steward, the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. I'm your host, Andrew Stanton, and I'm glad you've joined. We've been looking at improving your stewardship of the various forms of capital under your care. Today, we zero in on some practical ways of preserving and growing your financial and material capital. I'll reveal what is currently my favorite investment, along with the nuts and bolts of how it works. Coming up in just a moment on The Whole Steward. Thank you for joining episode number nine. I'm very thankful that you're out there and listening. I love talking about these things, and I could talk about them all day. Those of you who know me would confirm that, I think. However, you're not here for me. You're here for you. So let's jump right in. We've been looking at the various forms of capital that your wealth can take, and there are nine of them. As you know, they're spiritual, living, intellectual, experiential, social, cultural, material, financial, and time. And you can exchange your value from one to another and then back again. The focus of today's show will be on material and financial capital. You will likely have some level of value stored in either one of these at any given time, material or financial capital. These can be a touchy subject for Christians. However, they shouldn't be because, as we've seen, we take a holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview here. So let's not be afraid of any of those and let's jump into how can we better manage them and grow them. Now, I've talked to you a little bit about inflation, which is what I like to call the silent tax. Because we find ourselves in this modern monetary system, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to episode number seven. The modern monetary system gives control of a currency, which is a fiat currency, to a small group of people who can create or destroy it at any given time. For us, for you and for me, it is very illegal to create that currency. That would be creating counterfeit money, and you could go to jail for that. However, there are many other forms of capital that we deal with on a daily basis, and those are the nine forms. And so, we will be jumping in and out of financial or material capital at various given times. Let's better understand how to better preserve and grow our financial and material possessions. Let's do a good job for our Lord as we seek to honor Him. Now, when the Federal Reserve creates currency, that dilutes the currency that we use on a daily basis. That is the U.S. dollar. You can see in other countries this has been done as well, where the country will create currency and that drives the price of the currency down because there's more dollars chasing the same goods and services. It doesn't increase the capacity of the economy to produce more product or services. It just renders more dollars chasing those same goods and services. Now, you may have dollars in the bank or under your mattress right now or in your wallet or in your change jar that's sitting on the counter. Well, maybe you don't, because payment systems are going more and more digital now. But anyways, you understand 
that you have a certain amount of U.S. dollars to your name. The way that the Federal Reserve and the government can tax you without you even really knowing it is that they create currency and the value of your bank account goes down when they do that. It's almost like they're reaching down into your bank account and pulling purchasing power right out of that and spending it for their needs in the government. Remember how the Federal Reserve creates the currency and then the government borrows those dollars and spends them in government spending. So in a sense, by putting more dollars into the economy, they are reaching down into your bank account and pulling purchasing power out of it and spending it for their own purposes. And let me just ask you, do you agree with what the government spends the money on? Do you agree with it? You may agree with some of it, but do you agree with all of it? It's not really your choice or my choice what they spend on it, other than what we can do to influence the culture and the politics for who we vote into office. But for the most part, what they are spending the money on, we don't really have much control over that on an individual basis. Now, collectively, we need to care. They are spending us into debt. They are borrowing more and more money. Did you know that 42% of the currency in existence came into existence in the last two to three years. That is crazy to think about. Now, in my conversations, the topic has come up of will the government to pay their debts and to spend us into oblivion ever come directly for our bank accounts? The government could require you to pay taxes directly out of your bank account and they would seize a certain amount of money out of your bank account. That has happened in other countries before. It has not yet happened in the U.S., but it doesn't need to happen. Why would the government ever come and force taxes to be much higher than they already are? Because they can tax you silently, and everybody's okay with it. Well, the people will get a little bit upset when inflation starts to kick up into the double digits. But even then, life kind of goes on and they don't really realize that what's really happening is an elite group of people in the country are reaching right into your bank account, pulling the purchasing power out of it by inflating away your dollars and spending it for their purposes. So how do we combat this phenomenon? How do we ensure that when we created value and we are preserving it to use for the kingdom of God or for our families or for our friends or for missionary work around the world or whatever the case may be that we are spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be using material and financial means to do that those activities do not come free of cost in the world. And so we need to be managing our finances such that we can better preserve and divert those funds to the things that we know God wants us to do. If you leave your money in the bank and you sleep on it for 
20, 30 years, you're going to wake up and there will be almost no purchasing power left. And so don't let it happen for even a short amount of time. When you have a double-digit inflation, even in a single year, you will turn around and find, wow, my bank account is worth 10% less than it used to be. And how does that happen? Well, the prices are going up. We eat a lot of eggs, and we would pay last year in 2022 $15 for a flat of 30 eggs. That might sound like a lot to you, or maybe a little. However, we shop at the farmer's market, and these are pasture-raised chickens, and the eggs are very high quality. $15 for a flat of 30 Well, just this year, at the beginning of 2023, the price went up to $19, and now the price is at $22 for a flat of 30 Now, let me do the math real quick. That is... 47% inflation. Think about that for a second. 47% inflation on the price of a food that we eat on a regular basis. The eggs aren't really worth any more to me than they were last year. They're the same eggs. Now, there's a lot of factors behind that. For example, the egg shortage right now, along with a lot of other food shortages. And remember, the value of something is its scarcity and its utility but 47% inflation. That means if I had $100 in the bank last year, I could buy just over six and a half flats of eggs. But now, this year, with the same $100 in the bank, I can only buy four and a half flats of eggs. You see how the purchasing power of the money in the bank went down? That value went right out of my bank account. This is not a good thing for those who have money if you're going to store it in the form of U.S. dollars. So here's the question. What can you do to combat this? So let's figure out what form of capital could we store that $100 in so that it doesn't lose the purchasing power as we just demonstrated. So my question to you is, if I had an investment or an income stream that would rise with inflation, this would be no big deal because the money going in is for a certain amount of value created and the money going out is purchasing that same value worth of goods and services. However, if incomes do not rise with the rate of inflation, which that's been the case so far, now we have a problem because real wages are going down. Now, a lot of times people think of investing as buying stocks in the stock market. There are many investment opportunities, including stocks, which is really investing in business, or you could go into business for yourself. You have the bond market, the treasury market. You have real estate. Others will say that precious metals are an investment. Although with precious metals, I would say that it's a wealth preservation tool, not necessarily an investment, because the intrinsic value doesn't really go up or down, at least not that quickly. So can we find an investment that pays us cash flow every month? This is what I'm looking for. Would you like an investment that paid you money every month? Here's another question. Would you rather be debt-free or financially free? Let me explain the difference. Debt-free just means that you don't have 
any debts that you are obligated to pay on a regular basis. Your income could be 10 bucks a week and you could be debt free. However, I'd venture to say that you're not going to want to live, at least in America, on 10 bucks a week. You're not going to be able to even buy your food. Financially free, on the other hand, means that you have income producing investments that cover your expenses every month, every day, every year. These investments provide a cash flow that cover your expenses that allow you to work on the things that are important to you. They allow you to spend time with your family, to do gospel-centered missionary work, or to serve at the church. Whether you are debt-free or not, these investments cover your expenses. I would say that financially free beats debt-free any day. As long as the debt is structured properly. As long as you are playing the game according to the rules. And that is according to the rules of wisdom and the law and what is equitable according to what Scripture says. So ask yourself this question. Would you rather be debt-free or financially free? Now, when it comes to investing, there's two main ways that you can have a profit from an investment. That is capital gains and cash flow. Now, there is a third form of return, which most people don't think about, and I'll tell you about that one in a little bit. When you're buying stocks, many stocks are only invested in for capital gains. In other words, there's no dividends or cash flow being produced from the business that you get paid out for every month. However, there are other stocks which are dividend-paying stocks, and those would enable you to collect cash flow from those stocks. But those are really the two ways that you could be paid from the stock investing. Those are two ways you can be paid from stock investing. If you talk about gold or silver, as I said before, they're not really an investment because the gold, if you buy gold, it sits there and it has a certain amount of value, intrinsic value. That value doesn't really necessarily change unless industry comes up with new uses for gold, which might drive the intrinsic value up a little bit. For example, in my engineering experience, we would make circuit boards and these have connectors and various metal traces on the board. And gold is one of those that is very valuable. There's also copper in there and other types of metals. We use those to make our electronics. They're very good because they are non-corrosive in many ways. They have certain electrical properties that make them good for making circuit boards. However, if you buy gold as an investment, let's say you buy the gold and you stick it in your vault or under your mattress, it sits there and it doesn't corrode, so it holds its value, but it doesn't necessarily go up in value. There are also other forms of investments, like maybe bonds or mutual funds. You might even have a little experience with cryptocurrency, which I would say is more of a speculation than an investment. You are investing for capital gains. And if you're mining for cryptocurrency, say for Bitcoin, it's very expensive to do so. It takes a lot of energy to mine for gold or silver, and it also takes a lot of energy to mine for Bitcoin. So what is one investment strategy that I've left out so far? 
That is real estate. Real estate is an interesting asset class because every human being on the planet interacts with some sort of real estate at every moment of the day in some way or another. Have you ever thought of that? Somebody has to care for the land and the objects that sit on the land, such as a building or a field full of food that a farmer is growing. We have roads that sit on real estate. We have office space that sits on real estate. We have retail stores. We have our residential real estate. We have single-family homes. We have multifamily apartments. There are many different forms of real estate. And all the different types of real estate can be used in one way or another as an investment. So before we look at my favorite class of real estate that I'm currently invested in, and I'll tell you all about that coming up, just to review real quick, the nine forms of capital, the fact that inflation is a silent tax, ask yourself if you want to be debt-free or financially free, understand the various forms of returns you could get from an investment, and finally, think about what your wealth is stored in today. Is it stored in U.S. dollars or some other fiat currency? Is it stored in commodities, precious metals, businesses like the stock market or bonds or real estate or cryptocurrency? Let's jump in in just a moment to my favorite type of real estate and I'll show you how I make money to keep up with inflation and even beat it next on The Whole Steward. Hey there, it's Andrew. I pour a lot into The Whole Steward, and I'm so humbled you're listening. Did you know I regularly post new articles to our website? I also send the Holistic Approach to Wealth newsletter once a week, to which you can subscribe at thewholesteward.com newsletter. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on the show, would you share it with a friend or leave us a review? I'd really appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for listening. Welcome back. And now let's jump into an asset class that I invest in so I happen to be familiar with it and I can show you how we make a profit through the family business that we run, that is rental real estate. Now you might be wondering, why would Andrew want to share this publicly? Well, I have found success in this investment class and I want you to see how it works so that maybe you could do it too. The abundance mindset does not hold back what is providing success in a certain area, but rather wants to share it with more people so that you can find success too. If this is something that you are interested in doing, if nothing else, it may just open your eyes to thinking, hey, even if I don't do that particular thing, I could do something similar to it to find a way to combat this problem of inflation, to combat and even take advantage of and come out on the right side of this inflation equation. So our business model is this. We buy rental properties in residential real estate. Those are single-family homes, and we buy them not necessarily in our hometown. 
that was one of the sticking points when I first got started was that the recommendation was buy the properties in your hometown because that's what you're familiar with and you can manage them yourself, etc., etc. However, if you are investing for cash flow in the market that I live in, you cannot buy a single family home for 20% down and be cash flow positive. I'll talk about that more a little bit later. But for now, let's just look at the business model. So we buy mostly in the Midwest and South. The income in the form of rents is high enough to cover the expenses of the business, of the rental property, and then have just a little bit left over. The leftovers are the cash flow. It's kind of like playing Monopoly in real life. You buy one little house at a time, if each little house is a little bit of profit, at the end you might have a portfolio of income producing property. So what my wife and I do is buy from companies who do rehabs and new construction property. They will find a distressed property that is very run down, has lots of issues. We work with trusted providers that will do the rehab or the construction, and then they sell it to us as the investor, and they have in-house management to manage the property for you going forward. All of that happens under the same roof. We buy the property, then we rent it out to a long-term tenant. That person who is renting the property may be renting for various reasons. Maybe they're working on saving up a down payment, to buy a home for themselves, and in the meantime, they're going to rent. Some people like the flexibility of renting. They don't want to own the house because they want to be able to move much easier. Others might rent because they don't want to be responsible for the property. They don't want to learn how to fix a leak or do the maintenance or have to figure out who to call or make decisions on how to care for the home. Whatever the case, they want to rent a house or they need to rent a house. Everybody needs a place to live. And so we come along and we provide that housing. We say, here, we have a house that belongs to us. You can use it. And all we ask is that you pay a fee for that every month. That is called rent. So they pay a rental fee. Now, we need to know that the rent will cover all the expenses because if it doesn't, then the property is being operated at a loss. And that's not what we want to do. That is not our goal. We want not only capital gains from appreciation, but to be cash flow positive so that this is an income-producing endeavor. So prior to buying the house, you can evaluate the income versus the expected expenses. We want to make sure that the income will suffice so that it is cash flow positive. You need to make sure that you account for all the expenses. One of the biggest mistakes that a real estate investor might make is to not count for all the expenses. In order to do that, I use at a very basic level what is called the four square method. That you can picture as a box with a line vertically down the middle and then another line horizontally through the middle. In the top left, I'll put the purchase price and the rental income and any other income that the property might get. In the bottom left-hand quadrant, I'll put the expenses. 
in the top right hand quadrant, I'll put the cash flow. And then the bottom right hand quadrant, I'll analyze the return. So let's go through these a little bit slower. And let's use an example as we go through. In the top left hand quadrant, let's say we were purchasing a house for $100,000 and it would rent for $1,000 per month. So I'll put rent $1,000 and purchase price $100,000. In the bottom left hand quadrant, I'll use an acronym to help me not forget any of the expenses that I might have. That acronym is VLRKTUMP. That's V L I R C T U M T. That stands for Vacancy, Legal, Insurance, Repairs, CapEx, Taxes, Utilities, Management, and Turnover. When a tenant leaves your property and you need to get a new one, there will be a period of time where you don't have any income. So we want to account for that. I'll account 4% of the rental income toward that expense. Then you have legal fees. I count 1%. Sometimes you need to serve a late notice on the rent or something like that. For insurance, it's usually about 6%. For repairs, it's 5%. CapEx, which is capital expenditures, I'll account another 5%. Taxes will differ from region to region, but I'm going to account about 9% of the rental income toward that. Utilities, in this case, it's a single-family home, so the tenant pays the utilities. Management runs about 10%. Some companies will charge a little bit less than that. Then turnover, I count 5%, because the property manager will charge you a fee to find a new tenant and that just covers their advertising and their screening costs when they do background checks on possible renters for your house. So in our case, if we add up all those percentages, it comes out to 45%. 45% of the rental income goes toward expenses. These expenses are attached to the property. They are intrinsic to the nature of operating this particular property. And so you can adjust them as needed when you're evaluating a property. But this is just a very rough ballpark estimate of an example property. If the rent is $1,000 a month and the expenses are $450 a month, that, leaves, that leads you to the top right hand quadrant which is the cash flow it's 1000 minus 450 which renders $550 a month in cash flow or annually that comes out to $6600 $6600 is what we call the net operating income because it's the income that the property produces in and of itself regardless of how you choose to pay for the property. That brings us to quadrant four, which is at the bottom right-hand side. You can calculate the cap rate, also known as the capitalization rate, which is the annual cash flow divided by the purchase price. In this case, that comes out to 6.6%. So this property has a 6.6% cap rate. 
The cap rate is also the cash on cash return if you bought the property for all cash. Now, as you know, you can finance properties. One benefit of borrowing money in this case is that if the cap rate is above the interest rate that you would pay on the borrowed money, you will create a financial arbitrage. That is, you will make the spread between the cap rate and the interest rate. If it's 6.6% cap rate and a 6% mortgage, then you will be making a positive 0.6% spread. This will function to increase your rate of return. But coming back to the cash on cash return for an all cash purchase, that is the cap rate. And it's very important to understand the relationship between the cost of a property and the income that it can garnish. In other words, the profit that it can make you. So in this case, there's a $100,000 property and we can make a $6,600 a year profit. This is at a very basic level is a price to earnings ratio. You have the purchase price and the earnings. What can this property earn for that purchase price? And I would say 6.6% is pretty good. That is just the cash flow. That is money in and money out. All the normal expenses accounted for here, barring some big event. And there's a lot of details that I'm leaving out at this point we can talk about at a later time. But this is a very basic example. There are other ways that you will be making money with this property as well. One very obvious one is the capital gains. The price of the property will be going up over time in general. As the dollar loses value, the price goes up. The intrinsic value of the property doesn't necessarily change. Let's say it's a three-bedroom, two-bath house with a two-car garage. Year after year, it still has about the same utility, but the price keeps going up. That would generally at least keep up with inflation. Now, I know we've had higher than normal price inflation in residential real estate as of lately, but you could look at historical data trends for the market that you're interested in and see what is the historical inflation rate in the prices. Let's say that the inflation rate in this market is 5%. So theoretically, at the end of year one, your property will be worth $105,000. So the net increase is $5,000, and that would be considered a capital gain. Now, just as a quick note, some people would call this appreciation. However, I like to draw a distinction between price inflation and appreciation. Appreciation would be the property actually gaining intrinsic value. For example, this could happen if a new shopping center is built across the street or a Fortune 500 company moves their headquarters to that city. So the property would then be worth more, and that would be true appreciation. Both of those are combined to give your capital gains. So in the first year, we have 6.6% cash flow and 5% appreciation and price inflation for a total of 11.6% return so far. But we're not done. Real estate is also a very tax-advantaged asset class. You can write off 
all the expenses. You can easily roll the gains from the sale of one property into another one of like kind with a 1031 exchange. And there are other tax advantages as well. Ask your CPA about them. The tax savings are a little bit more difficult to quantify. This gives you an idea of what your return might be on a cash purchase of a residential single-family home. The return on investment is right around 12% in this example. And the other thing is that you are hedged against inflation because over time rents go up and prices go up, they generally keep up with inflation. Now at this point you might be thinking, wow, this is a pretty solid business model. There's not too much complexity and you can see that the returns are pretty straightforward. So you might ask yourself, well, if this is such a solid business model, would other people be willing to give me their money to execute this business model? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Real estate is a very easy asset class to get financing for because people give their money to the banks and the banks will give their money to you to do and execute this business model day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out. They're willing to loan you money to help you do this business. Now, I know interest rates may be a little bit higher than this right now, but let's say you could get a 6% interest rate. Let's rerun this example and see what the returns look like then. Just so we're clear, what we call this is using leverage. If you put 20% down and you borrow 80% of the purchase price, then you are using a 5 to 1 leverage. So let's look at the example. We put $20,000 down as a down payment, and then we borrow $80,000 from the bank. Does not have to be from a bank. You can get creative with your financing. You could partner with someone who brings the other part of the cash. You could borrow from private lenders. You could borrow from the bank. There's, there's lots of different ways to fund a real estate deal. So let's assume for this example that there's about 5% in closing costs and transaction fees. So we are all in cash invested $25,000, but we purchased a $100,000 house. The mortgage payment on this $80,000 loan would be $479.64. Now, keep in mind, should you choose to go this route, the mortgage payment will be your biggest expense. However, your biggest expense will be fixed for 30 years. None of your other expenses are fixed for 30 years, but your largest expense is. That means that your largest expense will seem smaller and smaller as time goes on. Also, The principal payments that you make in your mortgage payment go toward the form of equity. So you are building equity by paying down the loan every month. For this mortgage, the principal payment starts at $79.64. From there, the next month it goes to $80. And then six months down the road, it's up to $82. At the end of the loan, you are paying most of the mortgage toward the principal. All of these principal payments are going toward your equity. And that amount goes up and up and up over time. 
each month. So principal pay down is another form of return on your investment. You are also able to deduct the interest payments from the income. So it is a tax write-off. Lastly, the value of the debt is going down over time. We saw this in episode 7. So if you were to make no principal payments and 30 years later pay off a lump sum, you would find the $80,000 is much easier to pay off because the debt had lost value over time. This loan is a fully amortized loan over 30 years, so that means you are making principal payments. However, the remaining balance, the remaining debt, is losing value due to inflation. Now, the risk here is that if we do see deflation, then the value of the debt would go up and it would be harder to pay. However, as long as the Federal Reserve hits its targets of inflation over the long run, which has been the case for many years, probably longer than you've been alive, then the value of that debt will constantly trend down. So this is just another profit center of this property. So at the beginning, because we have a mortgage payment, our cash flow will be lower. It'll be $70.36 to start. And that comes out to $844.31 per year. Our price appreciation, we said, was $5,000. The tax savings, because I can write off all of these things from my income, generally I'm writing off other income with the expenses of this property. So let's say that's about $600 a year in tax savings. Then the principal pay down that I'm making on the mortgage payments comes out to $982.41 per year. And then the inflation profiting because the loan lost value at an inflation rate of 5%, say, now the new value is really about only $75,000 and change. So that's a net loss in value on the loan of about $3,762 in value. So let's sum all those up. $844.31 plus $5,000 plus $600 plus $982.41 plus $3,761.90. That comes out to $11,188.63 in returns. This is just in year one. Now, to see what that is compared to the investment, we invested $25,000 and we had a return of $11,188, so that comes out to 44.75% in year one. Now, be careful. If you wanted to sell at this point, you would actually take a loss because there are transaction fees with real estate. For example, you have to pay realtor fees when you're selling, and those run about 6%. There are other transaction costs like the origination fees that you paid for the loan and some transfer taxes and other type fees, some escrow fees and things like that. So you would take a loss in year one if you were to sell, even though you're seeing this 44% return. Over the long run, these returns start to go down because as you build equity, you lose leverage. So the more important metric that I like to look at is the internal rate of return. 
The internal rate of return is simply if you take all the money you put in to the investment, and then after the amount of time that you held the investment, you pull all the money back out, you see how much you have at the end, and then you do the math to say, what would I needed to have invested my money at each year to achieve that final amount that I got in the end? So I can tell you that the internal rate of return on a property like this one is somewhere between 10 and 15%. That would be the equivalent investment that you would have to make to match the returns on this one. Now you may have another investment that you could make a 10 to 15% return fairly guaranteed, maybe even more, but I would argue that this method is one of them. It's a sound business model and it does work. However, it requires work. I'm not gonna tell you that it's completely passive. It does take learning, it does take effort, and nothing in life worth doing is easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it and it wouldn't have that much value. However, you can rise above that and do this yourself if you want to. Now, I know that what we talked about today is not enough for you to understand all the ins and outs. And there are several aspects of this that I wasn't able to touch on today. So maybe next week I can dive in a little bit on some of those aspects that I missed. That way maybe you can get a little bit better understanding of what we're doing here. Now if you're hearing this for the first time, I know it was probably a lot to take in, so slow down, listen again. And if you have another investment that you prefer that is stable and sound and performs as well as this or even better, let me know. I would love to learn from you. Let's inspire each other to a more abundant harvest for the glory of God. To recap what we discussed today, inflation is a silent tax. Would you rather be debt-free or financially free? As you give thought to what you invest in, we did a bit of an introductory deep dive on an investment and a business model that I follow to get a healthy return. It's certainly not the only one, but you could do it as well if you wanted to. Don't forget to tune in next time for the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. Until then, now that you know more, go out and grow more. All content on The Whole Steward is for informational purposes only and must not be considered personal, professional, tax, or legal advice. Please consult an appropriate professional for individualized advice. Though we do our best to bring you reliable information, we make no guarantee on its accuracy. So you must rely on your own due diligence to draw your own conclusions. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and may not represent that of the host. Please visit our website for complete terms and conditions. Thanks for joining us today for The Holistic Approach to Wealth from a Christian Worldview. This show is brought to you by thewholesteward.com.